Welcome to the OA Let a Candle podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 300 speaker files, links for you to subscribe to the podcast, and a place that you will don- can donate to keep the special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael. Hello, everybody. My name is Michael, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I want to thank uh, David for asking me to come here tonight. I don't think David's here tonight. David's a good guy. I don't know if you know David. He uh, he wrote me a, a thank you note a couple of weeks ago. Thank you. You you've made a profound difference in my life. And and then he fired me as a sponsor. But he's a good man. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I, uh, I, uh, I love, uh, I love being in this room. This room is kind of special to me. My wife and I meet here on, uh, Sunday nights. We have a little, uh, 12-step couple thing that we go to. And, uh, and so it's nice. And congratulations to the birthday people. I want to be with my, uh, family tonight also. I have a 17-year-old daughter that's not a toddler, but uh, she's uh, playing basketball, a varsity basketball girl. And I uh, I uh, was on the phone to my sponsor uh, this morning telling him that I was afraid because I volunteered to be of service. And uh, I was afraid to take money for people that came in to buy tickets to the basketball event because I was just afraid. I, what if they tried to sneak in? What if I had to be um, assertive? What if I had... And my sponsor said, just be quiet and enjoy, you know, the, the service. Now, there are many times that I go to my daughter's basketball game and I have to pay. And, uh, and it's just like $5 at the most. And I'm very resentful that I should have to pay because my daughter's one of the stars of the team. And, uh, and I give the ticket taker attitude when I come in a lot of times. And usually it's sarcastic and stuff. I don't think I'll do that anymore. Because uh, most people are really nice and most people are really kind. And that's, that's, uh, that's not where I come from. I come from a fear... Based. I don't know where I got it. I'd like to blame it. I have a pretty horrendous job. I mean, I could really tell you uh, about some horror stories. about. I mean, I'm really talking about the disease in my family and stuff like that. But that's sort of dangerous for me because um, I've heard people that have father-knows-best existence, and they ate as much as I did to anesthetize themselves. And so if I have something to kind of blame it on, um, that makes me a little bit different than you. So I don't know if I'm going to dwell too much on my family history, but I will tell you that I came to you guys originally in the early 80s, and uh, I had been um, sober for a year, wasn't And uh, I started bitching and complaining about my three-pack-a-day cigarette habit because I didn't know what to do about it. And uh, the old-timers just blatantly came to me and said, Shut up. You know, you can smoke yourself to death. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. We're here to stop drinking. I don't want to hear about that other shit. Excuse my French. But, uh, and I got very offended because in that 
particular sobriety, I was of the opinion that I could say anything I wanted to from the podium. I could dress any way I wanted to. I could do whatever I want because I felt comfortable and safe. And these old timers didn't make me feel safe. And I was very offended. But one, one of the old timers put his arm around me and told me that there was something called Smokers Anonymous. And I think it's still around. I think it's called Nicotine Anonymous now. And uh, so he said, why don't you go bitch and complain at Smokers Anonymous? And, and I did. And I did for about six meetings. <laughs> Six weeks, and to make a long story short, um, uh, the obsession was removed. The three-pack-a-day obsession was removed. And shortly after, they nominated me secretary of that meeting, and uh, many times I just show up with a big book, and uh, nobody would be there. But I, I wasn't smoking. But the thing is, is I put on 30 pounds in 30 days, and... Um, and I got really nervous. So I went back to my AA meetings. And I, I said, what do you do about haagen And uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but a good meeting makes me hungry afterwards. <laughs> Even an OA meeting, I get really, really hungry. And, you know, they, they just kind of, yeah, just, yeah. And I, I got the message. So I knew there was Overeaters Anonymous. I came to you guys, and I listened. And... Um, I heard a lot of you didn't eat sugar and three meals a day with nothing in between. Some of you wouldn't eat white flour. And I really tried to do it. But uh, I didn't avail myself of a sponsor, and I kept getting bigger and bigger. And uh, after about a year, I raised my hand. I said, my name's Mike. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I think I need help. (laughs) I don't know how to do this. And uh, Matt M., who had lost well over 100 pounds, reached back to me and gave me his phone number. And I called him the the next day, and he was very nurturing and very loving. Um, And uh, he wanted to know what I was going to eat that day. And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And he said, well, why don't you go ahead and eat it, whatever it is. Just call me back the following day and uh, let me know what it was. And um, I said, okay. And I trusted him, I guess, enough to, and I'm sure I ate clean that day. I don't remember what it was. It was a long time ago, but I wanted to be accountable and impress Matt. And, uh, and I told him the next day the exact nature of my food. I call it today taking a fifth step with my food. Admitted to God, to myself, to another human being, the exact nature of my food. Good, bad, or indifferent. You know, the honesty. And that was hard. You know, especially as a beginner, you know, and not trusting anybody and stuff. But I trusted Matt enough. And I knew he had taken off 100 pounds. And he had was knew the big book, you know, back and forth. And so I surrendered to him. And... Um, and uh, the weight came off, and um, and slowly but surely I started feeling really, really comfortable. And so I I left you guys in, incrementally um, because I had my life got good, and there were sort of more important things. And uh, and uh, to make a long story short, I uh, I went out uh, in my um, in my AA program, and uh, for me. Part of my abstinence, I guess I'm lucky I'm an alcoholic because part of my abstinence, my food plan, is I don't drink or use, you know, a day at a time. And uh, I had been out, and I think it was in Brentwood, in this meeting, I had hap- I got, went to an AA meeting, and, I, and Dr. Paul was speaking. Dr. Paul's in our big book, uh, um, Dr. Addict Alcoholic. I think it's called On Acceptance now. It's, it's a great story if you haven't read it. And he's, he's been gone now for about 10 years, but... Uh, so um, he talked about um, um, never in my 20-some-odd years of, of sobriety, yeah, 20-some-odd years, did I not have a problem, did I have a problem to which the 12 steps didn't offer me a solution. 
And at that time, I was so far away from the 12 steps, and I was so far away from you, and I was into very heavy into th- psychotherapy and analysis and, and introspection. And, and I couldn't understand it because I would go to therapy, and they'd tell me to feel my feelings, and they'd tell me to let my anger out. And then I'd go to you guys, and you'd tell me, go help a newcomer. Get out of yourself. Go be of service. And I well, but uh, and it was it was confusing, you know. And and like I say, I had a pretty horrendous child. I had my mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia when um, in the early fifties, and um, she uh, she had a lobotomy, and that's where they cut part of your brain that they thought was. And she ended up at Camarillo State Hospital, healing over from a heart attack going to get a pack of cigarettes, of all things. And uh, so I thought the, the days that I didn't want to go to work in the morning, uh, that I had a chemical imbalance. And, um, you know, my sponsor would tell me, you know, you may have a chemical imbalance and you want to quit your job, but don't quit it until you have another job to back you up. And uh, I called my sponsor one morning and he wasn't at his desk and I, I called somebody else in this peripheral program that I were, and he said, Michael, go with what's in your heart. And after 12 and a half years and no sponsor, really, I wasn't using my sponsor. I went what was in my heart and I quit my job. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I had a little bank account and it ran out really quick. And, uh, and it got really, really scary. And that's when I went out in my other program. So Dr. Paul was like a breath of fresh air. And um, I was afraid to get his number, but his, his wife, Max, was sitting in the front row. So I asked her for his number. And to make a long story short, um, he started working the steps with me again and brought me back to the program. And um, I was so scared that I joined a real structured and disciplined uh, home group in my other program. And um, and uh, they believed in strong sponsorship. And I don't know about you, but I've worked this program uh, in the beginning after Matt. I think Matt left town or something. So I was without a sponsor for a while. So I'd ask a lot of people what their opinions were on problems that I had in my life. And the one that agreed with me was the one whose advice I took. <laughs> and I played that game. And I'm also involved in a few other programs here because I have a disease that manifests itself in many, many addictions. So I really kind of have to be careful about that. But in this one program, in my AA program, you believe in strong sponsorship. You only have one sponsor for crying out loud. And when I went to my AA sponsor and I said, you know what, I'm... I'm compulsively eating. I don't, you know, I was in OA before. I, I want to go back to OA. I was afraid he was going to tell me no, uh, but he didn't. But what he did say, he says, try every diet in the book, and if it fails, go back to OA. <laughs> it was his. He's not a compulsive eater. And I didn't want to do that. And so I, I got his permission, and I said, you know, I need another, I need a sponsor in that program. He says, I know, kid. He says, I can't help you in that program. Go ahead and do it. And uh, so I came to Richie, and um, Richie was uh, from New York, and uh, I started taking a fifth step with my food with him, and he turned me on to a little mini inventory uh, that I still do to this day to kind of clear away the wreckage of the present so that, uh, so, uh, so that I don't uh, anesthetize myself with food. And um, so then Richie moved. Um, he got married in this program, and uh, 
He's living in North Carolina now. He's still very much alive, and I'm in contact with him. And now I have Terrell as my, my OA sponsor. And uh, so uh, I believe very strongly in strong sponsorship. I believe for myself in inventory. It really helps me on a daily basis to uh, relieve myself of the bondage of self. I believe in, in having a commitment at a meeting because if I don't have a commitment, I've been doing this for a while, I just don't come to you guys. Other things uh, remain important to me. So uh, I, I believe in commitments in this meeting. I certainly believe in outreach calls. And I believe in sponsorship and all the other stuff, the prayer and the meditation. I mean, there's, there's so much um, in the program. That, but all I did when I was new was take a fifth step with my food and call my sponsor on a regular basis to be accountable and just to keep that connection. And, uh, and I didn't even have a commitment at a meeting. In retrospect, if I had it to do over again, uh, in my first abstinence, uh, I, I, uh, I would take a commitment at a meeting. So, um, that's basically, I didn't even set my time. Oh, jeez, got a long, I tried to rush and I've got a long time. Um, um, so, I'm the type of compulsive overeater that doesn't like to get out of bed in the morning. I'm the type of compulsive overeater that wants somebody to take care of me. Um, preferably a woman who has a lot of money and uh, who, uh, you know, will feed me and will uh, soothe me, will call into work uh, when I just don't feel like going to work and make up an excuse. I had one of those women, um, my ex-wife. And, uh, she was, uh, uh, a, and she continues to be a very loving, loving individual. And um, my current wife um, is not rich. Um, she doesn't want to take care of me. Um, she's got enough to deal with, as, as we both do. So, at any rate, the thing that I'm getting at, bless you, I, um, I didn't have a full-time job until I was 43 years old. And uh, I worked part-time at a company for 12 and a half years, and every time they'd ask me to commit, um, I'd tell them I couldn't because I had to be available for auditions and that I'm an actor. And, um, and so I leave this company at, at about noon, and I go to the beach, and because I wanted to work on my tan um, in case an audition came my way. And um, so this is the job that I quit after 12 and a half years that I didn't listen to my sponsor. And uh, so when I came to you uh, guys, uh, this, hopefully this last time, my sponsor had suggested that I go and talk to a counselor um, at uh, the university I went to before I went and practiced my disease. And I told my sponsor, I don't think I want to talk to a counselor because I, I was this close to being a teacher. And I quit. Uh, I, I guess I got afraid. And he said, well, Michael, I'm not telling you to be a teacher. He says, I don't care what you are. The concept behind it is you need to complete something that you left undone. He said, can you at least talk to a counselor? And I said, well, yeah, I can do that. So I went and I talked to a counselor. And it turns out that 17 years prior, when I had quit college, all those methods classes that I had taken were applicable. They were still good. And that I only had to take like one or two classes in order to student teach. And uh, I, didn't, I still didn't think I wanted to teach, but I was interested in maybe taking one of the classes. And within a year, 
um, I had completed the classes and I found myself student teaching. And um, little kids, elementary school kids. And this first grade classroom that I was teaching, first and second grade classroom, would go once a week into um, an orthopedically handicapped classroom. Kids that were in walkers and wheelchairs, little babies. And a lot of them had cerebral palsy and wore helmets. And uh, my heart just melted. And I don't know why I felt an affinity towards those kids. Maybe because I felt inside like they looked on the outside when I was a kid. I really, really was scared to death. And uh, the teacher who I volunteered with said, gee, you seem to have a, a, a knack for relating to these kids. And she introduced me to a couple of people. And when I went on a job interview for, for a teaching job, and I was scared to death to go on interviews because I knew that you know who I, who I really am. Um, I didn't have any experience, and the resume that I took was a bunch of letters that the kids wrote, um, and the teacher put it in a booklet, and it, Mr. Block, we love you, we don't want you to leave, you're the best teacher ever, and they I said, this is my resume, <laughs> and, uh, and I was honest, I was being honest, and um, so they hired me, they said, Mike, you can have this job, um, but it's a special ed job. You've got your regular ed credential. You have to go back to school and get a special ed credential. And I went to my sponsor and I told him, he said, well, it looks like that's what you're going to do. And, uh, and so I did it. And uh, my wife started having children. It's been a very fertile abstinence, let me tell you. We've, we have three children together and I have one child from my, my previous marriage who incidentally is clean and sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, just given me a grandson. So he's kind of break, broken the chain as well. Um, he was, well, let me see if I can focus here. Um, so anyway, while we were raising small children, I went back to school, graduate school, and I took like one class at a time, literally, because I was teaching full time and I was overwhelmed. And I couldn't believe that parents actually left these kids with muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy and spina bifida, and they, they kind of liked me and they trusted me and stuff, and I certainly loved them. And I call Richie sometimes. I go, Richie, you know, the standards, and they're coming down and they're pressuring teachers, and he'd say, my Michael, just shut up and love the kids. Love the kids. And, and I still hear that in my voice today. And that, that's, that's, that's what I do in my profession. So um, after it took about 10 years to get my special ed credential. And I got it. And uh, I got like a 3.8 GPA. Um, I cheated my way through college in the beginning, you know, and I really literally just kind of BS myself. But I did it legitimately, legitimately this time, and I feel like I kind of earned my degree. And I worked with those kids for about 11 years, and then uh, um, my path, they had something called the Arts Education Program with LAUSD. And um, a lot of um, visual arts teachers and theater arts teachers, music teachers, dance teachers go into all the elementary schools and try to expose the children to the various arts. And so I went and I, um, I inquired about that job and they sent a teacher to my special ed class. And, um, and uh, the next day they called me and said, if you want the job, you, you can be employed as a theater arts teacher. So for eight years, uh, the last eight years, I'm in my eighth year. They haven't found me out yet, but I'm a theater arts teacher, and I go into uh, ten different schools during the year, one school a day. I teach like 500 kids a week. I reach a lot of kids. 
And uh, I don't know if they're learning anything about theater arts, but I got to tell you, I'm loving the hell out of them. And uh, we're doing all kinds of program type stuff. And this year I'm getting stalled. I'm getting uh, observed uh, by my peers. And I was really nervous. And I wrote about it and I prayed about it. And the teacher came to see me and she gave me good feedback. She has one more time to come on December the 5th, I think. So I figured that that was a fluke that she saw me a few weeks ago, and uh, she's really going to find out. My, you know, my head keeps playing with me, you know, and uh, you keep getting me in touch with my spirit and my higher power uh, that that makes my life really good. And um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Christine and I just celebrated the last night, 22 years of uh, marriage. And we've been together for 32 years. That's a miracle in itself. It says in our literature we're incapable of having any kind of a relationship. And, um, you know, we've got three kids together. We've got a 21-year-old who's going to graduate college. And we've got a 18, 17-year-old who's playing basketball. Um, that's the one that I was uh, of service to doing the stuff with the tickets. And they postponed her game for two hours, so I'm not getting a chance to see her game. And I guess God just wanted me to be of service today and to take tickets and to uh, be a food runner. And then I have a 14-year-old who's uh, starting high school. And uh, it's not easy because I want to control them as well. I really want to control my kids. And My wife, five years ago, worked at the company that I worked at. For 12 and a half years and she worked there for 34 years and she decided her department decided to outsource her department so the whole department her whole life was turned upside down and she had worked there for 34 years and she was getting unemployment for a while and that ran out and she started to kind of look for a job and uh, uh, five years ago she told me that she didn't want to work anymore and um and I got scared, and I got angry, and I thought, what do you mean you don't want to work? we got three kids, for Christ's sake. Am I going to be the sole supporter? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it forced me to go yet another program that uh, deals with uh, when you, your wife doesn't do what you want her to do. <laughs> And the miracle is, is, you know, I've been supporting, we've got three kids and a, and a wife and stuff, and we've been doing well. I mean, you know, we're, we're on a tight budget and everything, but we don't want for anything, and um, we're really doing well, and it kind of feels good to think that for five years, she worked for 34 years, so I have a long time to catch up with her, but, you know, a long time ago, the, the man used to support, you know, the woman, and uh, in this economy, that's miraculous. So what's even more miraculous is that a lot of the time I'm compassionate to her and kind of kind and loving. And it wasn't, I'm not that type of a person. And, you know, maybe from the podium I am, but my ex-wife will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm rageful, I'm mean, I'm angry, I'm a bully. And, uh, and I take it out on my wives. So uh, we're getting a little bit better. And Chris and I will be here tomorrow night also sharing with other couples uh, you know, our honesty and our truth. So I don't know if I talk too much about uh, food, although I talked about all the issues that I ate over, and uh, I let you know uh, how my head operates. That's one of the things that I identified the most with when I came to you guys, because you talked like I thought, 
and you were kind of honest and open about it. You weren't really ashamed of it. And I was so ashamed of who I was and what I was thinking, especially uh, my deep, dark secrets on the, on the, on the inside. So you, you said that I had ten minutes. I think maybe that was five minutes ago. So I think I'll stop, and if there's a question or two, um, we'll take them. And if there aren't, we can leave early. <laughs> Thank you for letting me share. My abstinence, what it was in the beginning and what it's evolved to now. And um, in the beginning, it was three meals a day with nothing in between, no recreational sugar. And um, uh, I'd say a few years ago, with, with that abstinence, I was taking a fifth step with my food, but my meals were big. My red meat intake was big. I was going to In-N-Out Burger a lot without the bun, having a, what did they call it, protein style. And so my cholesterol went up uh, to 250, and uh, that's a lot. And uh, I called Richie, and Richie said, uh, you know, amend your diet and do more exercise. (laughs) And uh, he he turned me on to another, a little more structure and discipline uh, with my food. And so uh, I adhere to a certain... um, a certain regimen which involves a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables. And uh, at the end of the day, I kind of tally it up and see what I've done. And, um, and my cholesterol went down to 150, so I lost 100 pounds, uh, 100, pounds 100 um, points cholesterol-wise. And I'm back healthy, and I didn't have to take the statins, although I would have. You know, I waited years not to take blood pressure medication because I was going to change my diet and my food and my exercise. And I've got a little bit of damage because I held off on the blood pressure medication with my arteries. So I'm taking it today. And basically, I just surrendered to uh, my sponsor and, uh, and a lot of fruits and vegetables and asked God for help because of, on my own, I was thinking of going to Tito's Tacos after this meeting to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think I'll do it. Talk about uh, my relationship with my higher power. Um, I get it here. I get it in these rooms. Um, I uh, have a guy that calls me. My first call is like 5.15 in the morning because I do not want to get out of bed. And uh, I have a bunch of people that call and we talk and we read the literature together. And uh, then I get in the shower. And then uh, on the way to work, another couple of people call me. And then after work, another couple of people call me. And then before bed, another couple of people call me. And that's my main connection to a higher power because it relieves me of the bondage of self. I know all the prayers, the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. Um, There's a prayer recently that kind of covers all the bases. A couple of versions of the serenity prayer. Paul, Dr. Paul used to say, God grant me the serenity to calmly accept the things I cannot change. I'm not calm when I say the serenity prayer. But Paul asked for calmness. The uh, courage to change my attitude and my actions. okay, And the wisdom to enjoy the ride. Okay. Well, I don't have that much more time. I get old quickly, you know. And um, why be so crazy and scared all the time? Another version of the serenity prayer. God, grant me patience for changes that take so goddamn long. Excuse me. <laughs> patience for the changes that take so long. Grant me um, appreciation for all the things you've given me today. Grant me 
tolerance for others that are going through their own struggles. Let me be tolerant of them and grant me the strength to get up and try again one hour, one moment, one day at a time. So that kind of covers it for me. I like that version of the serenity prayer. So that, those little things get me in touch with a higher power. person asked about my meditation practice. And um, when I, before, long before program in the late, the early 70s, uh, Maharishi was around and uh, we gave him flowers and transcendental meditation and, and the Beatles. And my dad and I went and, to Westwood and we gave some flowers and we got this mantra. And you're never supposed to tell anybody about it. And you do it for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. And, um, and I do it. And I, I don't know if it's uh, made me any more spiritual, but it, I sure feel relaxed if I do it two times, uh, two times during the day. And it kind of rejuvenates me. So that's the only meditation, unless you count, count the spiritual books that I read. Um, I've, I've taken, to, taken pictures of my on my phone of uh, messages, you know, from books that are pertinent to me. So, because I forget a lot and I'll go on my iPhone and I'll look during the day sometimes. But uh, just relaxation, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, basically, that particular meditation. It says in our literature, you know, there's, it's a treasure trove. There's all kinds of meditation out there. So that's my experience. Yes. Um, how did my recovery in OA affect my relationship with my wife? Instead of binging when I feel anger or when I felt anger, I exploded and I actually let that anger out. And it felt good at the time, but uh, the repercussions of the guilt and the and then I got hungry afterwards again. So the food certainly didn't didn't fix it. So, you know, if the food's not going to fix it and you're giving me the power not to eat, I have to go somewhere with that anger and I have to go and use the steps to focus on me. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and it's, it, it hasn't been easy. I know better intellectually than to explode. And, uh, and I think incrementally, it's been a couple of years um, that I've really been working on turning the focus on me and letting go of controlling her and the anger and the bullying and the animosity that I've had toward her. So, uh, so that's in a nutshell, sort of. I can talk to you more if you want to. Thank you for letting me share.